Inward faith, I just gave the whole sermon away, didn't I? I can sit back down now. Uh, there was a whole bunch of backstory going on in the passage we just read. Um, some great pillars of the faith. You know, Peter, uh, one of Jesus' favourite disciples, walked on water well, for a bit and then sunk. Um, he was the one who jumped out of the water first to meet the Jesus on the bank. We remember Barnabas was an encourager and Titus and all these people are great pillars of the faith. And then we've got Paul just very unhappy with them. Uh, so that's all you kind of need to know the backstory because we're going to jump down and start at about verse 11. Um, but before we do that, let me just say what we see here is the Apostle Peter hanging out with his best mates, which we wouldn't normally think is a problem, right? I mean, he's allowed to hang out with his friends, except Peter's doing this at the exclusion of other Christians. And we see Peter promoting this inward-looking faith and by his actions, actions suggesting that we are not all one in Christ. By his actions, he's suggesting that we're not all equal, that there are first and second class Christians. And at this kind of display of exclusivity, Paul sees red. One of my commentaries says he's, he speaks with an electric tone. Well, we'll see that in a minute. Because nothing upsets Paul more than a corrupted gospel. So make no mistake, Peter's actions are at best the beginning of this kind of slippery slope into said corruption. But at the worst, they're a contradiction of his own words and his agreement with the others and a blatant disregard for Jesus' teaching. So it's, it's all on the line today. In fact, what we see here is nothing new in our context either. Hey, Google, how many Christian denominations are there? Well, Michael, there are 33,089 last time I counted. Not that Google says my name, it doesn't like me or care about me, but you know what I mean. 33,000 denominations, but shelve that because this isn't so much about different church gatherings. Most of our differences are personality and not so much theology. This is about the dangers of exclusive gatherings in groups when it comes to the faith. And on that note, today's message may well be deeply personal. You're probably going to hope, as I did, that Paul was once again complaining about, I don't know, sexual immorality or something. But no, today it's the issue he's got is far closer to home because we can all make this mistake. We must guard ourselves against in-groups and exclusion. Let me pray. We'll open up Galatians 2. I don't have a three-point message for us this morning, but I do have a couple of points that we can write in our books if you've got one of those books that Ali was arranging for us. If you don't, there's some great notes to take as part of Galatians 2. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your great love. Open our hearts and minds to your word and help us to slow down into the pace of your spirit to hear what you've got to say this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. That last bit of the prayer was for me. Now, before we read it, let me say a few things about Peter and Cephas or Caiaphas. Peter and Cephas, it's one and the same person. They're the same person. There's no clear reason, there's no crystal clear reason as to why Paul is using Peter's Aramaic name, which is Cephas, but we can hazard a guess. And the guess is this. Paul uses Cephas as a matter of respect. For Cephas is his family name, his familiar name. This is the name that Jesus would have used when calling him out of the boat. 
Well, Paul is simply a Greek translation of his name. It's a bit like my Samuel. Now, he's quite happy for us at home. We call him Sam. But if you're not part of his family, he doesn't like it at all. He finds it a bit grating. For him, it's Samuel. To his friends, it's Samuel. To his family, it's Sam. In a similar way, this is how it is for Peter. Cephas is his family name. So Paul, in calling him Cephas, it fits the context that he's appealing to this closeness of a family, that he is one in the same family. They're both one in Christ. So to his brother in Christ, Paul addresses Peter's actions, starting from verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him face to face because he stood condemned. Now, would you say that to a brother or sister or a friend? It's pretty serious words, isn't it? Now, I didn't read the first part of the chapter, but in that, where we, well, Julie read it for us, he detailed his meeting between, in Jerusalem with the apostles. He spoke about how he had their blessing and agreement on both that they preached the same gospel, the same gospel that Jesus preached, and included in this was the need not to be circumcised, or to abstain from particular foods in order to be a follower of Jesus. And Paul even opened that. He humbly pointed out that he went to them to speak to them to make sure he wasn't running his race in vain. Even though in chapter 1 he had told us that his message came from Christ directly. He still didn't assume it was, it was his way or the highway. He went in and spoke with them and they agreed on the gospel. And herein lies the conflict. Peter is being a hypocrite, having affirmed the gospel already, gospel just means good news, having affirmed the good news already, yet claiming by his actions a different gospel, one that was not good news, one that involved first and second class Christians, one where the Gentiles, that's you and me, were not as saved as the Jews. And worse, Peter's false gospel is spreading. It's a social contagion. Now, that's a great one to put in your notes. False gospels become social contagions. It's a bit like what we see today with discrimination kind of wrapped up in well-meaning equity or racism kind of wrapped up in a well-meaning critical race theory or even more seriously, murder wrapped up as compassion. The ways of exclusion quickly and quietly return if we fail to guard ourselves and our communities. And none of this is new, is it? Verse 12, For before certain men came from James, the brother of Jesus, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. So he's drawing back fellowship because he's afraid of this in-group, this circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Barnabas is recorded as being the encourager of the faith. And here he is being led astray. Can you see what I mean? Their actions are saying that Christ isn't enough. Their actions are saying that the Gentiles are less saved or less clean. Their actions are saying that we are not all one in Christ. And the hypocrisy is that both the Paul and the apostles and Jesus, they preach the opposite. 
They preached faith alone, Christ alone. It was Christ plus nothing, if you remember last week's message. And they did it right from the get-go. So what's happening here? What is happening? Why are they withdrawing this fellowship from their friends and fellow converts? Why are they ignoring what Paul had taught? The good news that the apostles agreed upon. Why are they ignoring Jesus' words? It's not what goes into a person that defiles them. It's what comes out and it's easy. They're embarrassed about their new friends when their old mates turn up. They're embarrassed about their new friends and their old mates turn up. I remember as an early Christian, my Christian friends, they were a bit weird and I didn't want them to meet my other friends because they might say something weird. Or maybe I might say something to my other friends that I, I couldn't say in front of my Christian friends. They were embarrassed. But for Paul, hmm, Paul has no such inhibition. His relationship with Christ is enough. He doesn't need the cool kid. He doesn't need the company of others. For Paul, Christ is enough. For us, Christ is enough. Christ is enough. That's another great note to put down. Like, we've got to remember that. Christ is enough. For us, Christ is enough. We do need friends, and so does Paul, but that must never be our primary focus. C.S. Lewis famously says, he says, I love this the way he puts it, he says, focus on heaven, put your attention on heaven, and you will get the earth thrown in. But focus on the earth and the things of this world, and you will get neither. Not the earth, nor heaven. Coming to the defence of all Christians, Paul sees red. Like I said, the commentary I was reading on this the other day said he's, he's electric, you know, he's, he's fired up, he's riled up with this false gospel. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, that's that we're all one in Christ, I said to Cephas, Peter, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. You're the sinner that you claim that they are. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? This is a, a serious rebuke. It's no small thing. Paul is speaking to the biggest guy in the prison. We've all seen it on a movie, haven't we? You know, coming up and having to address the big bully in the prison. He's speaking to the coolest kid in the school, the toughest bully in the playground. And he's doing it with a reckless abandon. But is he really reckless? I don't think so. Notice that even in Paul's rebuke of Peter, he uses Cephas, his family name. He uses this name that, that is familiar, this family name, the name that Jesus would have spoken. And this familiarity would not have been lost on Peter. It would have been as if Jesus was speaking once again those famous words to Peter when he was in error. Get behind me, Satan. It's a serious rebuke, but it's coming from love. And the rebuke is built on their common relationship and history in Christ. And this is another good point for us to remember. We must rebuke out of relationship. It's no good coming up to someone who's behaving inappropriately when you have no relationship and telling them the way it is. It won't go well. They won't hear you. 
because they don't know you and they don't trust you. But here as an insider, Paul is able to rebuke with love. And this is what it's all about. We're all one in Christ. Jew, Gentile, male, female, circumcised, uncircumcised, married, single, whatever. We're all one in Christ. But Paul's not done. Check out verse 15. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. It's faith in Jesus Christ. It's not that other thing. So we too... We put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. If we can just follow the rules, everyone will be happy. If we can just follow the rules, everyone will like us. We all know that following the rules is impossible. Just driving from here to Mayfield, do you know how many rules I have to obey? My daughter's about to start on her L's. She knows how many rules you've got to obey. There's hundreds and hundreds of them. It's impossible. But Peter does have an advantage, and so does Paul. But it's not the reason that Peter's implying. The reason they have an advantage is that they are Jews. They know the old covenant. They've, they've read the Old Testament, as we would call it. They know of this Messiah, this Saviour who is to come, who has come in Jesus. So yes, they've got an advantage, but that advantage is actually a great responsibility to share and to teach with others. So despite their advantages, they know that they're not saved by the law, just like we know we're not saved by the law. They know they're not saved by that but they are saved by faith in Christ. For what Christ taught is enough. And this is what they've agreed upon. Yet how dare Peter and all those who fell in line behind him imply by their actions that faith isn't enough, that Christ isn't enough. Well, no wonder Paul saw red. No wonder he's still seeing red. For next he articulates the argument again, but this time he does it from the first person, as if he's speaking what they're thinking. Verse 17. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves almost also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. In other words, does Christ make sinners out of the Jews? Of course he doesn't. They were sinners, newsflash, before Christ turned up. And to return to the law as a means of salvation, well, that just reinforces the point that they will never measure up. They will never get there. The alternative, Paul's way as opposed to Peter's way, well, that's detailed next in verse 19. And this is the good news. This is what salvation is all about. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's pointing out the truth and the truth is this. 
And this is one of those great notes to put down. The law brings death. It always has. Take Adam and Eve in the garden. Just one rule. Right? Just one. Don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. And they couldn't even do that. And death was the result. Which means that the law, it always demands death of those who break it. That's what it is to be a lawbreaker. It's a fundamental moral truth. It's not just a Christian thing. And many countries reflect this truth that disobedience or rejection of the law or failing to keep the law brings death. Well, they have the death sentence, don't they? For the more serious crimes. And this is serious for all humanity. Have you ever lied? I have. I'm a lawbreaker. I deserve the penalty that comes with breaking the law. Have you ever stolen anything? Even the smallest of things? I have. We are lawbreakers. Have you entertained improper thoughts about someone of the opposite sex or even the same sex? I certainly have. We are lawbreakers. And they're just the simple ones, right? They're the culturally acceptable things to do. We all break the law in any number of ways every single day. And that weight of the law just pushes us into the ground, doesn't it? We're all lawbreakers. But for Christ. Christ paid the price for our lawlessness. He paid the penalty on the cross on our behalf. That's the death that we deserve. He took it upon himself. And when we follow and believe in him, he lives in us. This is what Paul is saying. This is what he's reminding them of. This is the truth that sets us free. And lastly, his final words in verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. The grace of God is to give us Jesus, to die in our place, to take the punishment for the sin that we deserve, the death that we deserve for the sin that we do. If righteousness could be gained through another method, well, then Christ died for nothing. Salvation, if heaven could be attained by a different method or another method other than faith and trust in Jesus, well, then the songs we sing every Sunday would be for nothing. The words we speak together at communion when we do the Lord's Supper together would be for nothing. All of this would be for nothing. Let me wrap up with a story. According to the 2021 census, so three years ago, and we all had that bit of paper, we did it on a computer that year. I think it was the first year we did it on computers. That was great. You could do it 100 miles an hour. Now, according to the census, there's a very close to 50-50 chance that I could walk down any street in our area, knock on a door, and the family would be a Christian. 50-50, according to the census, pretty close to. Now, we know that's not true, don't we? We absolutely know that's not true. And I can tell you from experience, I've knocked on with others every door in Stockton and Fern Bay, and I can tell you without a doubt, that amount is not even close, like nowhere near close. Stick with me. Now this is from the combined 
ABS data for Stockton Fern Bay and Fullerton Cove, and it tells this story. 43.2% of us are Christian. We ticked one of those Christian boxes. Catholic, Anglican, uniting, other. 38.9% ticked the no religion box. Doesn't mean they don't believe in God, just means they don't affiliate with a religion. 6.4% have got no idea. Well, whatever. They just had no comment. That's okay. Maybe they just donkey voted the whole thing. I do have a question, though. Of the 43.2%, how many do we think actually go to church on Sunday? Come on, it's a question. 2%? You're harsher than I am, Suzanne. Anyone else? 0.2, even harsher. Well, the truth is we don't know. But if I was going to pick a number, they don't ask that question on the census, but probably fib anyway. I go to church every week, once a year. Um, Look, I don't think it could be any more than 5%. I don't think it could. And I picked 5% because I'm not as mean as some. I picked 5% because it couldn't be any higher for one simple reason. We would notice the traffic. We would notice the traffic. Think about it. Of the 3,812 people, that's the 43%, that's how many people it would be, according to the census, we have 2.3 people per household. That means if they all went to church, there'd be 1,657 cars on the road. Pretty much all at the same time. Most churches are at 9 or 10. Could you imagine the traffic jam? And when they got to church, where would they park? (laughs) It'd be worse than the toy run, the marathon, the supercars. In fact, it'd be worse than the fireworks. Imagine a fireworks-style traffic jam every Sunday. Wow, but no, antidotically speaking, there is no discernible difference in traffic on any given Sunday. Am I right? I think I'm right. See, it turns out that the average Australian's faith, like Peter's faith, it's turned inwards. It's become exclusive, practised in our own homes, if at all, and only shared with the people we like. And sorry, church is not about getting together with people we like. Many of you are not that nice. You're rather ordinary. And I'm sure the feeling's mutual. I mean, if we weren't Christians, would we really hang out? Would we? We wouldn't even know each other. And we'd be all the poorer for it. If we didn't know each other, how would we work together to further the mission of Christ? This is not a solo ministry. I can't do mainly music on my own. I can't teach scripture on my own. Newsflash, they don't pay me very well to go to the school and teach a bunch of kids. That's your job. Thank you. But it's not just me, is it? Thrift shop couldn't make that happen. We couldn't gather for Bible studies. Kids' church couldn't happen. There are two adults over there looking after a couple of kids. They're sacrificing their time in church and fellowship so we can be together and the kids can get age-appropriate teaching. Praise God for them. We can't do that alone. Walking groups, so much more. 
the mission teams we've had here over the years, the Newcastle Christian students. I can't run that on my own. And of course, the beach mission we had at Christmas. And this is the point, isn't it? This is what Paul's just blowing up about. This behaviour, this inward focus has taken hold of a community that he loves so dearly, just like it's taken hold of ours. There is no such thing as a solo Christian. I just want to put that out there. I don't know everybody. Maybe it's possible. I don't, there's no such thing as a solo Christian. I'm sticking to my guns. And I'll go as far as to say as there's no such thing as a solo Christian family either. For this kind of inward-looking behaviour points towards a gospel that's no gospel at all. It points towards something that's not good news. This inward faith is pointing to a gospel that says we're not all one in Christ. Maybe we are in lip service, but we're not actually in practice. It's pointing to a gospel that says that we, we don't actually love others as Christ commands us to. It's pointing to this false gospel that says, well, those people in church, they hurt me. I'm, I'm not going to forgive them as we are forgiven. It's pointing to a gospel that says we don't need each other. A gospel that says we don't need to tell others. Now, I get that I'm preaching to those who aren't here today, all right? I get the irony of that. But still, I'm praying for two things, and I hope you pray with me. There's two things, things that we who do gather, I want to pray that, that we don't engage in gossip and these in-groups, that we don't do things that are less than Christ-like in our behaviour. I pray that we don't give people an excuse to stay home. Yes, we're a work in progress. Yes, we're not all perfect yet, and we won't be this side of our own resurrection in Christ. But we must do our very best not to give people an excuse to stay home. The second thing I want us to be praying and thinking about is how can we encourage? I'll even go so far as to say, how can we give them a bit of a shake? How can we challenge them? That's the non-practicing Christians that are out there. Let's pray that the Spirit of Christ would draw them back in, that we would see a great revival, and that traffic jam would become a horrible reality. Sorry I'm late, Pastor. I was stuck in traffic. Come on, how good would that be? We'd have to start with maybe four songs instead of two so we can make it to church on time. Imagine having to leave home 30 minutes earlier because I reckon you'd have to leave home a good 30 minutes earlier if that kind of number of cars were on the road. Imagine that. What have we discovered? An inward faith is no faith at all. That's to write on the head of your Galatians book, chapter 2. An inward faith is no faith at all. In fact, an inward faith is dangerous because it spreads and it corrupts. Christian groups get smaller and smaller as they divide and exclude until eventually it's just the solo Christian. Faith only practised at home. And then a generation later, there is no faith at all. That's the trajectory of these exclusive groups, those with inward-looking faith. In a generation, there'll be no faith at all. 
And are we not seeing the fruit of that already? Would you pray with me for revival? Would you pray with me for packed streets and latecomers to church because of the traffic? That's what I'm praying for. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your great love. That with the Holy Spirit in us, we know the truth. And that truth is a gospel that welcomes all. We pray, Father, for streets that are so full of cars that we struggle to get to church. We pray that getting to church will be so difficult <laughs> that we would need to carpool. How about that? Be with us, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your presence this morning. Amen.